Well, I do again want to say good morning to you, and uh, thank you for joining us uh, this morning as, as we just get to celebrate this season. You know, it's, it's something so special about Christmas. Um, even though it's often a time that we are running uh, a lot, it, it's great just to be able to pause and, and just worship and remember why we are celebrating. So I want to ask you, if you have your Bibles, let's go to Romans chapter 7 uh, this morning as we continue through this series of what God wants. You know, it, it's appropriate this morning that the children performed their play. I want to say thank you to Tammy and Tracy for the work. Uh, the parents for making sure their children were here for uh, practice and, and everything. Because we need to be reminded why we celebrate this. You know, it's, it's easy to get distracted by the commercialization of this time of year. But Christmas is important because of Easter. It's really preparing us for that time a year. And, you know, we as humans, we tend to believe one or two lies. The first lie is the lie of autonomy. Now, this lie says, I'm my independent person, and because I am, I get to do whatever I want, whenever, however I want. And certainly we see that a lot in our society right now, don't we? This idea that I'm going to do what I want, when I want, how I want. The second lie that we tend to believe is the lie of self-sufficiency. And this lie tells us that everything I need to live a happy life depends on me. So all I need to do is just try a little bit harder and life would be fine. Try a little bit more. Try different things. And whatever makes me happy, that's what it's going to take. You know, these two lies not only are damaging to our lives, but they're very damaging to the relationships around us. They affect a lot of marriages, a lot of families, a lot of uh, friendships and other things. But even worse than that, these two lies are condemning to our soul because they're rooted not in the truth of Scripture, but in the lies and the deception of Satan. And, And so... What's the truth that can set us free? What can we see that will help us to stop believing these two lies? Well, the one big thing this morning is this, that while the law is good and necessary, only the gospel can save us. And so let's look at verse 7. I'm going to begin in verse 18, and I'm going to ask if you're able, if you would stand as we honor the reading of God's word together this morning. It says, for I know that in me, that's in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that I would not, it is no more that I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, law 
of sin. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the play we have seen, the reminder of why Christmas matters. But Lord, I pray that as we open your word, as we study it this morning together, that it would not be my thoughts and my opinions presented, but rather the Holy Spirit would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. While the law is good and necessary, only the gospel can save us. This is why Christmas matters. What do we need according to this text? Well, the first thing that we need to see here is the fact that we need the law. Now we have to go back to verse 7. And Paul writes there, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Now, in God giving us the law in the Old Testament, he did two very vital things for us. The first one is this. He revealed himself. He revealed holiness and his moral perfection in everything. And so we need to get a proper view of who God is. But then the second thing that the law did for us is it gives us a way to see ourselves clearly. You know, Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9 says that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We have a tendency to believe the very best about ourselves while often believing the very worst about others. Our own self-deception causes us to think that as long as I'm mostly obedient to the Bible, then then God's going to be okay with that. Like, mostly is good enough. But Scripture paints a different picture. See, there in James chapter 2 and verse 10, what we read is this, For whoever breaks one of the commandments, he is guilty of breaking them all. If you and I being right with God depends on what you and I do, then we're all in a lot of trouble. Because there is no such thing as a 90% Christian. There's no such thing as a 99% Christian. To sin in any way is to be sinful in every way. And this is vital for you and I to get because sometimes we look at other people's lives and we judge them based on the choices that they're making while at the same time excusing our own behavior. And Scripture says, no, no. The law clearly reveals to us that we are all sinners. And not only that, but we see here in chapter 7 of Romans and verse 19. For the good that I would do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. And he, he continues to, to go on in 21. He says, I find that a law that when I would do good, evil is present within me. This is Paul going, it's not just what I do that's the problem. The problem is who I am. The law reveals that not only are our actions sinful, but our attitudes, our motivations for what we do are often wrong and that is revealing the sin that is inside of each and every one of us see by giving us the law God is revealing there is an absolute truth and in our society there is a war right now 
It's asking the same question that Pilate asked Jesus the day that Jesus was handed over for crucifixion. You remember what he asked him? What is truth? In our society, there is a war for this idea of truth. And what we as a society have settled on is this, that truth is relative. What does that mean? It means that I get to decide what's right for me, and you get to decide what's right for you. This is that lie of autonomy and self-sufficiency coming out in our lives. What is being taught in society, and even unfortunately in our school system, is that I get to define truth. The reality is you and I do not get to define truth. God has defined it in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why John 14 and verse 6 is where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All truth is from God, and it is pointing us to God. Now this idea of me getting to decide what's true and you deciding what's true for you isn't anything new. We can go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3 and we can see Adam and Eve swallowing the two lies that we talked about in the opening. That lie of autonomy that I get to decide what's right and that lie of self-sufficiency that it's all about me. Now how do we see that in Genesis 3? Well remember, Eve is standing there and the serpent says, did God say, did God really say that if you ate that you would die? Eh, you won't die. God knows that the day you eat of that, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be like him. And so in that moment, Adam and Eve believe this lie of autonomy that they get to decide which voice am I going to listen to? Am I going to listen to what God has told me or what I want to believe? And this is a question that you and I are confronted with every single day. But then after they eat, their eyes are open, Scripture says, and they hear the voice of God ask, where are you? I love it when an all-knowing, all-seeing God asks a question, right? Because he's about to reveal the truth that they didn't realize. And so hearing God's voice, what do they do? They go and hide themselves. And God, it, it, because of his love and his grace, he continues to come towards them. And so understanding they're about to be found out, what do they do? They sew fig leaves together and put them over. This is the lie of self-sufficiency that they could make themselves right with God. And this is a lie we see even in the church over and over. That people believe their works will be good enough for God to accept them and save them. So we see it all the way back in, in Genesis. But it didn't disappear. You come forward a few thousand years, David's son Solomon. Scripture says, the wisest man ever lived. In Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12, we read this. That there is a way which seems right to man. And the end of those ways is death. So when you and I try to decide what is true for us, what is right for us, the end result of that is death. Not just physical, but spiritual. That separation from God for all of eternity. And this is part of the reason that God gave us the law, so that we would re recognize what moral 
is and what truth is because it points us to Christ. The law is also good, not only revealing who God is, but producing conviction. Revealing who we really are. All right, so this is going to be a a, a moment of audience participation. How many of you like having rules? Okay, a couple of you. Okay. Well, actually a little bit higher than I thought. All right, so let me ask you another question. How many of you like knowing what it's going to take to make somebody happy in your life? Uh, well, well, wait wait a minute now. That's, yeah, that's a much bigger number, but hold on. Because just a minute ago, you told me by not raising your hand, you didn't like rules. And now you're saying, well, I need rules so I know how to please somebody I love. So which is it? See, right here's the... Here's the issue, right? The, the issue is that when we build our life on our truth, our truth is shifting sand. We shape and shift ourselves for that moment. But then when it becomes convenient, we shift ourselves again. We keep pivoting back and forth on that. And what it does is it just opens a big crater. And we lose ourselves because we're like this one time and then we're doing something different another time. The law is designed not to restrict our freedom, but rather to define our freedom. The law is to act as a guardrail for our lives. Why? Because we as sheep would easily wander off a cliff over and over if God did not put some guardrails in our life. And this is the function of Scripture. The Bible is not meant to restrict your freedom and your happiness. It is meant to find it. What can I do? How can I live that is going to please and glorify the God I love? And can you imagine if God did not give us any idea but he's given us everything. In his word, he points out how we can live and please him and glorify him with our life. See, without the law, we wouldn't know what sin was. It's exactly what Paul says there. He said, is the law sin? God forbid. I I wouldn't know sin but by the law. And so God has revealed not only his holiness, but he has also revealed our sinfulness but the next thing that we need to see this morning is we need to understand the weakness of the law while the law is good in that it reveals the person of God the law is very weak in one point and I would argue the most important point the law is weak in that it was never designed to save If you and I were to go and keep the 613 commandments of the Old Testament law as revealed in Exodus to Numbers, even if we managed to keep them perfectly, which is impossible, but let's just go to fantasy land for a moment and say that we did, do you know that we still would not be good enough to be saved? We would still be lost 
The prophet Isaiah puts it this way, Isaiah 64, verse 6. All of our righteousness is but filthy rags. You know, there are a lot of people, especially this time of year, um, we, we tend to see a kinder, gentler side of a lot of people in society around Christmas time. And the thing about it is, even all the good that they do isn't really good when it's stacked up against the rebellion that they are living in against God. And you and I, we're the same way. You know, God doesn't love us more because we come to church or we read our Bible or we pray or we give, we serve. He doesn't love us more for those things. That our good, if not motivated by a love for our Savior, would be like a dirty rag. Now, how many of you, you go to a garage, it's got oil and all sorts of stains and stuff all over it. How many of you are going to use that to go and clean the mirror in your bathroom? None of us. That would be crazy. Yet every time you and I try to be good enough to earn our way into heaven, we're taking an oily rag and wiping it on a mirror. What it does, it doesn't help us see ourselves clearly. It distorts our view of us. It distorts our view of who God is. You know, if we went back into the Old Testament, when did God give the law? He gave it at the base of Mount Sinai after he had delivered Israel from Egypt. After he had already called Israel by his name and saved them and brought them out of the sinfulness of Egypt. Then he gave them the law. See, the law was never intended to save us. The law was given so that we could maintain a right relationship with God. Listen, the Old Testament is not obsolete regardless of what you hear. We still need the Old Testament because it informs the New Testament. We need to be studying the Old Testament to understand who God is and what he has done for us. Because while the law could not save us, it points us to the one who was coming to save us. Have you ever examined some of the prophecies in the Old Testament that related to the coming of Jesus? Why was he born in Bethlehem? Because the prophet Micah Inspired by God, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, said that the Messiah, the promised one of Genesis 3, was going to be born in Bethlehem. Why is it important that Jesus was born of a virgin? Because God said his deliverer, his Messiah, the Savior of the world, was going to be born of a virgin. That that birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, it revealed to the world that God is with us. God could have, and he would have been well within his rights to toss Israel to the side and toss you and I to the side. Because if it was left up to us, we would do our own thing, our own way every time. But God had a plan, and this is the part that's mind-blowing. Before I ever said a prayer and walked in the aisle at BBS, before I ever started attending church or reading the Bible, long before I ever uh, became a pastor, even before God spoke the words of Genesis 1 and created everything, 
before the foundation of the world. Ephesians tells us. God had a plan that in the fullness of time, He sent Jesus to save the world. So long before you and I ever became, quote-unquote, good church-going people, God had a plan. See, God's plan of salvation does not depend on what you and I do. It depends entirely on who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us. And that's good news. Because on our own, we would be lost without hope. Law wasn't meant to give us a right relationship with God. He was meant to teach us how to maintain that relationship. To live in such a way as to glorify Him. So if the law is good, and it is, but we can't be saved by keeping the law, then what hope do we have? And this is really where Paul is getting at in verse 24 and 25. We need to see that grace is essential. Verse 24 is Paul's summary. He says, oh, wretched man that I am. Now, this isn't Paul going, man, I'm kind of a bad guy. This isn't Paul going, I've done some bad things. Paul is going, I am hopeless and helpless. I am wretched. I am poor. I'm naked. I'm blind. I'm nothing. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? See, Paul, before he was saved on that Damascus road, he was a Pharisee. He was a religious guy. He had memorized the Torah. He had memorized much of the Old Testament. He was living the way he was supposed to. He was thinking, because he had been taught since he was very little, if you do the right things, then God's going to reward you by letting you come into his family. Because you're Jewish, you got to take it in. This is what Paul grew up believing. And so he's confronted in this text. He's confronted with who he is. He says, the things that I should do, I don't do. And the things that I shouldn't do, those are the things that I'm doing. He's going, I, I thought I was a godly guy. But man, my life is, my life is messed up. And his conclusion, I was a wretched man. Paul is going, I can't save myself. Paul had been brought by God to this point to understand what the gospel is. And the gospel begins there in verse 25. See, Paul says, I can't save myself in verse 24. Verse 25 says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul said, I used to trust myself. But then the gospel found me. And I realized it wasn't what I did, but rather it's what Jesus did that makes me right with God and we see this over and and over you know so often we think that what needs to change is our actions our our behaviors need to change and and while our actions do need to change there's no doubt before our actions can meaningfully change the root of the problem has to be changed the root is our heart that deceitful desperately wicked part of us our mind, our emotions, our thoughts lead to our actions. And Paul says in verse 24, I can't change my heart. I can't change what really needs 
to do. And so this is why he thanks God. Because what he couldn't change, God through Jesus has changed. We have to understand that the heart of the matter is the matter of our heart. It's not just what we do. It's not just what we say. It's why we do it. You know, sometimes we do things for people out of obligation, right? Sometimes we just go through the motions. Sometimes we do things because we want them to do something back for us, right? I scratch your back, you scratch my back, right? Here's the issue. This is where Matthew 15 would go. We're doing the right things. We're doing them for the wrong reasons, and therefore God's not glorified. When it's about us, when it's about what we can get out of it, we're not glorifying Him. This is where that righteousness and filthy rags really comes into play here. Uh, Bodie Bachman said this, quote, Hell will be filled with people who didn't smoke, didn't cuss, and may have even been baptized. Why? Because none of those things make someone a Christian. We often think that it is what we do that makes us right with God. He says, no. It's surrendering to the grace that is found in Jesus Christ that makes us right with God. Paul asks that question in verse 24. If I can't save myself, what can I do? And he answers in verse 25. I could have the hope in Jesus I can have this confident expectation that as I die to myself and I trust in what Jesus did on the cross, then I'm right with God. And this was his plan from the very beginning. And not just in that time, but even now. See, we who at one time were hopeless and helpless, we who were dead in our sins, Ephesians 2 tells us, have been pointed to the one that is the hope of Christmas and the hope of humanity. And his name is Jesus. That's the point of Christmas. Why did Jesus have to come? Because we are wretched men and women who cannot deliver ourselves from the body of this death. Jesus came to rescue and redeem us from ourselves. Might have that grace and experience forgiveness and redemption. So what do we do? When we understand that this babe born in Bethlehem was sent by God to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, what is this text calling you and I to do? I would point to two things. Number one, model grace. One of the biggest things I want to stress to us this morning is this. Remember where God found you. You Sometimes we've been saved for a while and we forget the, the mess that God saved us from. We forget the poor choices that we made, the people we hurt, the the sinful acts we did. And so we start to think, well, I'm a pretty good person. Of course God's going to save me. I went to church. I, I did this, did that. But we forget that every saint has passed. We have to model it. You know, 
there are two types of people here this morning. There are sinners who are lost in sin, and there are sinners who have been saved by grace. And we've got to remember this. We don't want to judge somebody because they sin differently than we do. See, some people sin you can visibly see, while some of us spend a lifetime of trying to hide it. And we may hide it from the eyes of people, but not from the eyes of God, who would not only see what we do, but in his all-knowingness, knew we were going to do it in the first place. We have to model grace, but we also have to teach Uh, A quote that is wrongly attributed to someone says this. Preach the gospel always. Use words if necessary. Now that sounds cute. It fits great on a little mat for a picture frame. But it's antithetical to the gospel. It's the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. Romans 10, 13 to 17 tell us something very, very different. That if the lost are going to be saved, they've got to hear the gospel. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And how shall they hear unless someone is sent? If you are here this morning and you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you have been sent. You and I are to live and share the gospel every day that God gives us the opportunity to do so. To be silent about it is to not love God and is certainly not to love others. We have to tell of this good news in everything that we are doing. And so I would say there are four things that as believers we need to give to the lost that are around us and in our lives. Number one, they need insight. I know it's really unpleasant to talk about sin and our society is offended by that word, tough, we got to say it. We have to call a duck a duck. Uh, Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 says, Woe to him who calls evil good and good evil. Now the thing about it is the messenger doesn't have to be mean. All right, Beating somebody over the head is not going to bring them to Christ. But they've got to clearly understand that they are lost apart from Christ. And so we have to call duck a duck. We have to name the sin, which leads to the second thing, and that's compassion. Judgment and condemnation from Christians will not win the lost to Christ. Taking a Bible and pounding somebody over the head is not going to make them wake up when they go, oh, you know what, you're exactly right. Man, let me come to Jesus. Over and over in the gospel, read this. Jesus was moved with compassion. For the people. The people who rejected him. The people who rebelled against him. The people who wanted to crucify him. He had compassion on them. He, he never overlooked their sin. He didn't look the other way. He didn't deny their sin. Rather, he showed them their sin and immediately pointed them to himself as the hope. And this is what we do as we share the gospel. Yes, They hear of sin and how we have all sinned, but then we immediately point them to hope. The third thing that they need is hope. See, Paul spent most of Romans 7 talking about sin and how he was condemned, but he doesn't end there. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God. 
but with the flesh, the law of sin. Now, in our English Bibles, there's a chapter break. All right, you go from 725 to 8-1. But you read it in the originals, the thought continues to go. So look at the very next verse. There is therefore. That word therefore is a connector word. All right, it's connecting what he has just said with what he's about to say. So, verse 24, I'm lost, I'm hopeless, I'm in trouble. Verse 25, God sent Jesus Christ so I can be saved. And because he has saved me, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. What's he saying? That from the moment I surrender to the gospel in Jesus Christ, all my sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west. I am no longer condemned. Everything that the devil tries to bring up to me and remind me of when I feel unworthy of the love of God, and guess what? I am un, I'm unlovable. I'm unworthy. But I can remember that salvation didn't depend on me. It depends on Jesus. And because I am in Jesus, I am no longer condemned. And he continues, man, I love how chapter 8 ends. He says, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded, verse 38 says, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What has Paul just said? Paul has said, even though I have sinned and God has every right to get rid of me because he has saved me by his grace, I am no longer condemned and I can never lose that gift. This is the hope of Christmas. This is the joy of salvation that those that God saves by grace are secured by that grace. We need to not only point, tell people that they're lost, but we need to point them to Jesus because the fourth thing they need is rescue. It's not enough for somebody to the gospel. One of the greatest causes of concern in the American church is this. That there are a lot of people who sit in churches just like this week after week and they know the truth of the gospel but it hasn't changed here in their heart. And it hasn't changed how they're living. And the worst part of it is this. Satan has convinced them that they're saved. And so they go their whole life believing a lie. Believing that just simply knowing the truths of the Bible is enough. But how do I know that I believe the gospel? Well, James would answer it this way, James 1.22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves. The way that I know that I've trusted the gospel, the way that I know I've been saved by God's grace, is not because I walked an aisle, said a prayer, signed a card. I know I've been saved by God's grace because every day He is changing me. He is transforming my life. See, while it's true this morning that God will meet you where you are, it's equally true that God loves you so much that He won't leave you where you are. You can't love God and stay, you can't go with God and stay where you are. He is going to begin to change you 
And so it's going to be evident by your life that you've been saved by His grace. And so I would simply ask this question. If you claim to have trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, what evidence is there in your life? How has God changed you? How is He presently changing you? The thing is, sometimes you're going to grow really quickly. And sometimes it's going to be a little bit slower. But He's going to be changing you the whole time. So how do you know it? What evidence is there in your life that you have been saved by grace and that you're growing in that grace? Another question I would ask is this. Are you modeling grace for those around you? See, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, that we as Christians, we're to be ambassadors for Christ. And so those that name the name of Christ must shine the light of Christ to those that we encounter. First, to our church family, and second, to the world. Are you modeling Christ? Are you modeling that same grace? Are you giving that same forgiveness that you have received? If not, this is an opportunity to confess it, to be cleansed, and to ask God for help. Because saying I'm a Christian isn't the same thing as living like a Christian. So whether you need to surrender to the grace of God, or that you need to confess that maybe I haven't portrayed God. Let's respond to it. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to pray together. Father God, as we continue to go through this morning service, we thank you for the opportunity of just being able to be in your house. And God, I, I thank you for this, this day this day of worship, being able to see and be a part of what you're doing here at Westlake Baptist, but also in this community. Father, it's, it's only by your grace that we're saved. It's only by your grace that we're changed. Lord, you are offering each person this opportunity to be saved by that grace. And so I pray for those, Lord, that are the furthest from you right now. Lord, that through your word, your spirit has been drawing them closer. That today would be that day of salvation. That they would just be honest and say, you know, I've been trusting myself. But today, I'm going to trust Jesus. And for every day from here on out, I'm going to rely on him. Lord, we, we know that you hear the prayer and the cries of those who are genuinely seeking you. But Father, sometimes it's easy for us to say that we're a Christian. It's a little bit harder to live it. Because we do still have that sin nature in us. I've heard pastors say that it's easier to preach ten sermons than it is just to live out one. So Father, if there's someone here who is struggling to model grace, if 
there's something that is just tripping them up, if they're being a stumbling block to somebody on their way to you, Lord, I pray that you would just lay that on their heart, not in judgment or condemnation, but rather so they can just confess it. Knowing that you have already accepted them and you have already washed away their sins by your blood. Father, we need you to restore us. So Lord, as you have spoken, let us respond in Jesus' name. Amen. As you continue to stand, we're going to sing one more song. Amazing Grace. Familiar, you can look on page 330 if you need it. And if God has said anything, let's respond. The altar is going to be open.